Welcome to City Life Church Podcast. Our desire is that all may come to know Christ and fulfill their purpose in life. We welcome you to head over to our website for more information. God bless you and enjoy the message. Well, it's good to be worshiping together this morning. Amen. This is good. Amen. We've been talking. We started last week, uh, Generation Influence. And guess what? That includes all of us because we are all part of a generation together. But obviously, there's different segments of generations. And we're going to touch on those and go into a a good story this morning in the Bible. I feel like for a lot of the generations, they may feel like their future or what's going to happen, they feel like it's already past them. It's like, well, I already had my season. I already had my generation time. But I'm here today to say that's not how God works. If you're breathing and you're alive today, this is your generation. And you have influence. And so no matter what generation you fall in, you have influence. And, And really the purpose of the influence, not only for us together in the body of Christ, but it's seeing God's kingdom built, and to be able to influence outside and see the generations that are out there who are confused and trying to figure out life, that we can be that Jesus today in the sense of who we are today, that's what people are looking for. And, there's, and so there's some things that we're going to learn through this process as we talk about this and we open up some more doors here to this. Lord, I just pray, Lord, I pray for every person here. And I also pray for every person that is yet to hear the good news of Jesus Christ because of our influence, because of our coming together as a, as a generation that has, is seeking you. God is looking for open doors, God, that we can be an extension of the experience we talked about last week, experiencing your presence firsthand and knowing what it is to be in your presence, God, and to be able to take that and multiply that and to be influences outside of our own lives. And we thank you, God, for what you are doing and what you are going to do. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen, amen, amen. I want to quickly just go through these generations for you. They'll be on the screen and uh, say a couple things I mentioned toward the end of last week, and then we'll move into a little bit farther. But just first of all, just the traditionalists generation or the silent generation. These are people who were born before 1946. And by the way, the silent generation was really, back then it was taught to those that as a kid, be seen but not heard. You go to a a family gathering, you go somewhere in public and the parents always say, okay kids, you just be quiet. You just got to sit here and be quiet. We don't want to hear you. So it was kind of that silent generation that was the adults were the ones that could talk and do that thing. The kids had to be quiet. Things have changed a little bit since then. So just out of curiosity, how many here today fall in that generation? And I'm not telling you to tell us your age, but so we have, we have a few people here that fall into this traditionalist or this generation. Then, then we have the baby boomer generation. That's me. And who else falls into the baby boomers? So we have a fair amount of you. Right on the edge, but you're in. You, you barely snuck in there. And Jeff, I bet you wish you were a Generation X 
but you didn't get there, so transition. you transition back and forth. So that's the 46 to 64 year in that category. Then we have the Generation X between 65 and 76. How many of you fall in that? Brett, put your hand down. Oh, you are? Oh, okay. <laughs> Some reason I thought you were older than that. It's, it's all the wisdom. It's, oh, it's Cindy. That's right. Okay. Oh. <laughs> well, so again, I, is, it, is Brett the only one in that category? Okay. Yeah, we have, we have, we have got a couple here. And then we have the millennials or the gener- generation Y, born between 77 and 95. How many of you are in that? Okay. That's probably the largest group besides the boomers, somewhere in there. And that, that's good. And then we have the Generation Z, or the I, iGen, or Centennials, whatever you want to call it, but they were born in 1996 or after that. How many fall in that category? So we have some young, this side of the room. Yeah, they don't like to sit on this side over here. You guys, you guys should have been hooping and hollering or something. Yeah, there you go, one little hoop. Yeah. <laughs> That's good. So... Here's basically kind of a definition of a generation. A generation is a group of people born around the same time and raised around the same place. People in this birth cohort exhibit similar characteristics, preferences, and values over their lifetime. And then the definition here, the Center for Generational Kinetics, believes that generations are not a box. Instead, they are powerful clues showing where to begin connecting with and influencing people of different ages. This is kind of part of our focus, and and we're going to do something today uh, a little bit in in that regard. There's obviously a big difference between generations in the sense of there's, there's all these gaps and there's a lot of things don't get passed on or, the, or they're looked at as like, well, that's yesteryear and we're not doing that or, or what they did then doesn't work today. All of the different thoughts and ideas that are out there. And each generation is different. There's a, there's a separation that seems to be distinct in that. I wanted to just share four keys that I at least have seen that trends, key trends that shape generations. These four things are parenting, technology, religion, and economics. These things shape a lot. And I was thinking about the parenting part of it because how parenting was done 50 years ago is so different than parenting today. And we can see the results of that. And so there was the parenting done in the previous generations, you know, it was, it was pretty stern. And it was, there wasn't a lot of leeway for the kids and so and, and usually dad was the you know the hardcore disciplinarian and that I, I still can hear the closet door flying open and the belt coming out of the closet and uh, but I lived to tell about uh, those things and, the, and but discipline is good and that's the bible talks about that right so but parenting and how we parent is a big influence part of influence in our generation the technology, man, oh man, has it ever changed in the last few years? I mean, technology didn't move a whole lot in comparison from the previous you know, generations as it has just in the last two generations. It's just, and it's gone crazy. And so, and then you, you put in religion, because there's always been this place for a lot of people of trying to either, I'm religious, I'm not religious, 
and then their experience, a relationship with God or not having one. So that plays a part too. And then the, just the economics. And we, we see how that changes the shift and change in the economy and everything affects our generation and, and how we make decisions and how we do things. What I want to talk about this morning is just take the first one and talk a little bit about that. So we get a little sense. Everybody gets a sense and a feel for what the traditional generation is, or be seen but not her generation. So let's just take a look at that. So the, the first thing, the members of this generation, of course, we know they were born before 1946, so 73 years and older. And we know we have a few of you here this morning. And thank you so much for being here and representing this amazing generation that is alive and well. Can I hear an amen? All right. So... Some of the things they experienced, and obviously not all of them experienced these things, but this is in this group. They experienced World War I, the Great Depression. That shaped and molded a lot of people, didn't it? And World War II for some of them, too. So there was a lot of things that happened. There was a lot of reason for that generation to make decisions and what they did and how they did it. And they lived their lives in, in such a way that is different than definitely the next generation or the generation after. So I want to talk this morning about some characteristics of traditionalist generation. And these things are things that I found out there, and it obviously doesn't, every person can't say, oh, I never, that wasn't me, that wasn't me. That's, I understand that, but just general information for characteristics of a traditional generation. So they're loyal. And the next one, they tend to be submissive because they were taught to respect authority. That's something that was very much so, is respect, respect. And they will avoid causing trouble and are a good team player. And that's just birthed out of And I'm not saying that some of these generations don't do these things. I'm just saying as a whole, generally, they're the least likely to initiate conflict at work because of what they were taught at home. There's principles that were instilled, and they were so instilled that no matter what in their life, it reflected into their life. There's a tendency to resist change. Hmm. No, that's not necessarily a bad thing, but that's just, they liked it the way they liked it, and that was going to, and it doesn't mean the people today don't, this generation doesn't have people like that too, but that was kind of the tendency. They're the least likely to change jobs, to job from one job to another. They would get a job, they would be faithful, and they would be loyal, and they would just stick to that job, and they would work it. And um, they value stability, safety, security, consistency, and commitment. There's just a lot of things that was very solid and stable for that generation that they look for. They like to be recognized for their hard work. Recognition is one of the key characteristics of this group. Just like, man, we are a hard-working generation. We did whatever it took to put food on the table to take care of our family. That was important. They see work as a team effort and avoid conflict. they just like, man, we're going together. I don't know whatever's going on out there, but we're going to get this done. This group is also technically challenged and they may struggle to learn new technology. Doesn't mean they don't want to or don't try, but it's a little bit of a challenge to try to adapt to some of the technology for today. However, there are many that have email, Facebook, and other social media accounts and communicate with others with these new technologies. Just by asking how many of you in this group have some sort of social media, Facebook, or anything, any of you in that group? So, yeah. So I see some of your hands are up. So you're, you're kind of sort of hand like this high, but it's okay to, it's okay to admit 
that you've crossed over into this incredible generation of technology and say, man, yeah, this is good. They also prefer lecture-style training over web-based, such as online studies or webinars. And webinar is probably a word that they're like, what's that word? <laughs> so, but there's, there's these things that we recognize and see, many good things in there. So then just some traditionalist background. Background. They had very little exposure and need for computers and other devices that we take for granted today. They had no clue what a computer was, but when they grew up in that generation, they didn't have a need for it. They didn't know. All the desktop computers, laptops, tablets, smartphones, all of these things that we take for granted today. And many of them have transitioned into those because they say, these are cool. <laughs> and then they ask their grandkids, how do I work this? <laughs> They rely on human interaction for their daily entertainment. This affects how the generations interact with each other because it was so important. Family, getting together, seeing people face-to-face, -face, interacting, talking, actually talking face-to-face, -face, that was something important. They would prefer to speak to somebody face-to-face -face or on the phone, where we know now this generation, I'd, I'm just going to text that person. It's different, a different way of... But that face-to-face, -face, that get on the phone, that, those kind of conversations... Very meaningful. And so it's something that's important that we need to understand that. They value their relationships with others. They will honor and value their promises. Their word is their, it is their word. It's their promise. You know, so many things, it was done on a handshake. If there was a business deal, that generation, if you shook hands with somebody and said, this is a business deal, it was your word was your word. And you did it. Today, you got lawyers involved and you got thousands of pages of stuff just to try to protect yourself from somebody else. It's a different generation. And so all this process, now that we go through, there's something to be said about a handshake. And I think there's things to be learned from this generation about that. So here's my question for some of you. If you were born after 1976, what would be some of the strengths or positives that you would want to connect with from this generation. If you can look at those, go back to the characteristics, if you want to throw those up there. If you're born after 1976, what would be some of the strengths, the positives, the things that you see in there that you'd say, you know what, I, I would like to grab a hold, I would like to connect with that a little bit. Any, any of you that are born after 1976, any, anything that jumps out at you and say, you know what, I, I see that might be missing or that might be something that would be important. Yeah, that humility and contrite. Good, that's a good point. Wisdom. Wisdom. I like that one. Team player. Team player. Resiliency. Resiliency, yeah. Being able to just stay in there, being resilient. Respecting authority. Stability. Stab yeah, exactly. Ah, good, human interaction. Valuing the small things. Yeah, and that's so critical. And nowadays, we, it seems like we just blow through that stuff and not a big deal. There's, there was a price that was paid. Yeah, definitely a price paid. Anybody else? And I have one more question. Teamwork. Teamwork. Very good. The next question then, to this age group, if you were born after 1976, and I give way to Tony, even though I know he was born before 76, but I appreciate the answer. By the way, Tony will have an opportunity to share some things next Sunday because he's going to be speaking next Sunday on this subject. So we're excited to, to, to be able to hear some of those things. So the next question is, how could you, as this born after 76 generation, 
how could you support maybe some of their challenges that they are faced with in connecting with your generation, maybe some of their fears. Technology might be one of those things. So how, how do you think you could support helping in some of their challenges? What would be some of the things that you would do if you were to have a conversation or that you could say, hey, I could help with this. I could help get that gap down to where it's not the gap that we see right now. Anybody have any ideas what they may do in regards to that? Spending time outside of the church? Yeah, spending time with, with, with those, getting coffee with those people, with some of them, take initiative. Courts, maybe? Oh, yeah, get, get the old people out on the court, huh? <laughs> <laughs> oh, watch sports with them? Yeah. Yeah. No, that's good. Yeah, I could see Josh, you'd be taking somebody out on the, and breaking their ankles out on the. <laughs> no, I'm just teasing. Supporting and challenge, uh, you know, them and their challenges or connecting with them, whether it's technology stuff. There's just some things I'm just thinking about being able to take the time to cross into the other generations that maybe you're just passing by them all the time and, and each side's thinking, wow, we're just so far apart or we don't understand each other or whatever. But taking the time to connect and find out some of these characteristics that we saw that are so entrenched and so the character, the deposits that are in these folks that they have that is to be mined out. I remember sitting down with a lady who used to go to this church. She died at 106 or 107. Martha Kerr was her name. She was a pioneer in this community. Her family name was Longmire. They established Longmire, Washington, and uh, all the Mount Rainier and all that stuff. And Eatonville, the, the Van Eatons were their good friends. And so they were the horse and carriage. That's what she grew up in. And that's what they had. They went between here and different places just with the horse and the buggy, okay? But I sat down one day when she was in her late 90s. And, and this was, I don't know how many, 30 years ago maybe it was. I don't remember, but it's been a long time ago. Just to talk to her. And she told some incredible stories just about the Native Americans and the, the, what, the interaction they had with, with the Indians and with the, the governor and all of the key people, the just incredible stories that you sell, and then learn some of the characteristics and principles that they have, and, and it was so valuable to me. So those kind of things that there's this crossing over of the younger generation intentionally grabbing a hold of that older generation and saying, hey, I want to I wanna learn from you, I want to glean from you. And that older generation having interest in what the younger generations are doing and saying, hey, help show me what it is you're doing and, and why you do it. And becoming, be able to work together and encouraging each other. And instead of that kind of like what I said last week, oh, they're just a bunch of old folks who who, you know, they're way beyond their prime and they don't have any, you know, they're not relevant today. But they are. God has every, as long as you're alive and breathing, you have relevancy and you have purpose. And we do all together. And so the younger generation, we can't blow them off saying they don't, oh, they're just a bunch of punk kids that don't have a clue in life and they're just, they don't know anything. All that. There's, so there's got to be this generation influence that we're working on. 
working together. So I want to just have a couple of few minutes here left, but I want to jump into this story that I want to, we're going to go through a bunch of scripture and read through it, and I'll just make a couple comments through this. But there's this man that many of us know, this man named Elijah, who's a prophet, and Elijah experienced some real-life challenges, some high times, some low times, difficult times, and God established the next generation that was coming up after Elijah, and that was established through Elisha. And so he had to work with Elijah, and God brought them together, and it was really, there was an increase of the anointing that Elijah walked with that was brought over and transferred to Elisha, and there's a reason why. So we're going to talk about that a little bit today and going through, and I want to kind of go through a little bit of this story just to give you some background on this and why these two were linked up and what Elijah went through and experienced. And so God instructed Elijah to declare that there's going to be a drought for a few years, and so he prophesied that and declared that. And so Elijah began to go through these challenges and experiences, and his faith was tested. And so Elijah was going through the process of life, and he was having to learn and experience stuff that he had to go through in order to look at the next generation and be able to, to pass on the, the faith and pass, pass on the experience and the stories. And then that generation had to be able to then reach out and say, I need what you have, and then God's going to build on that and do more. So I just want to put together some building blocks of Elijah's life here and look what the passing of these kingdom principles baton, this baton that was passed, the kingdom principles was passed from one generation to the next and what it looked like from two generational perspectives, what it looked like from Elijah's perspective and Elisha's perspective. And so let's jump into this in 1 Kings chapter 17. And I'm going to go through and read through a bunch of scripture here, and it'll be up on the, the screen, and so we're going to not necessarily flow in order of, of one verse after the other, but we're skipping a few verses here and there just for the sake of time. But starting in 1 Kings chapter 17, so this was after the drought was declared by Elijah, and so we start here. The ravens brought him bread and meat each morning and evening, and he drank from the brook. But after a while, the brook dried up, for there was no rainfall anywhere in the land. Verse 8. Then Eli uh, the Lord said to Elijah, Go and live in the village of Zephyrath near the city of Sidon. I have instructed a widow there to feed you. So he went to Zephyrath, and he arrived at the gates of the village. He saw a widow gathering sticks, and he asked her, Would you please bring me a little water in a cup? As she was going to get it, he called to her, Bring me a bite of bread too. Kind of demanding here, it seems like. She said, I swear by the Lord your God that I don't have a single piece of bread in the house, and I have only a handful of flour left in a jar and a little cooking oil in the bottom of the jug. I was just gathering a few sticks to cook this last meal, and then my son and I will die. Sounds promising. Sounds encouraging. She's like, okay, I mean, we're going to die anyway. So she did as Elijah said, and she, she and Elijah and her family continued to eat for many days. She went and did exactly what he said, got all the, the jugs, filled them up, and just God just kept, as long as there was jugs, they were, they were filled, and every, there was plenty. There was always enough flour and olive oil left in the containers, just as the Lord had promised through Elijah, because Elijah had prompted, the Lord said, I'm going to do this, you, you do this, and simply ask this woman. So here's this 
Elijah going through this process of, this was a faith test on him, a faith test for this woman, and there was a relationship that began to be built here between these two people. And sometime later, the woman's son became sick. He grew worse and worse, and he finally died. What does she do? She calls Elijah. She knows him. She has a relationship with this guy. Calls him in, because this guy is a guy who, whatever he said, was a miracle. And so, verse 21, and he, Elijah, stretched himself out over the child three times and cried out to the Lord, O Lord, my God, please let this child's life return to him. The Lord heard Elijah's prayer, and the life of the child returned, and he revived. That's a, definitely a faith builder, wouldn't it be for you? Yeah, if, <laughs> that's probably one of the greatest miracles that could ever happen, is somebody that was dead, and you go in and pray for them, and they come back to life. That would be a little bit exciting, would be for sure. <laughs> so there's some faith established and built, and there's some experience that Elijah is going through, and he's learning. So we jump chapter 18. So we have this King Ahab of Israel. So he saw Elijah, and he explained this. He said, you're a troublemaker, Elijah. What have you come to do? So there wasn't a good rapport there. Elijah said, I've made no, verse 18, I've made no trouble for Israel. Elijah replied, you and your family are the troublemakers. For you have refused to obey the commands of the Lord and have worshipped the images of Baal instead. Now summon all Israel to join me at Mount Carmel, along with the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who were supported by Jezebel. See, Israel had fallen into some really serious bad stuff and the, the worshiping other gods, all the things, of course, that God had said don't do. They fall into all of this stuff. So they are as far away as you can get from worshiping the one true God. So... Ahab summoned all the people of Israel and the prophets to Mount Carmel. Then Elijah stood in front of them and said this, How much longer will you waver, hobbling between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. But the people were completely silent. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only prophet of the Lord who is left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Now, if you've read this story, he might be kind of milking that statistic a little bit because he really wasn't the only prophet left. I think he was trying to, you know, because previously Obadiah had hidden a hundred of, of the prophets in a cave, and so he wasn't the only one left. But he felt like he was the only one left, and it was like, it's me and God, and if this thing doesn't work, you know, this is over. But he had the faith. He was declaring something here. He said, now bring two bulls, verse 23, the prophets of Baal may choose whichever one they wish and cut it into pieces and lay it on the wood of their altar, but without setting it on fire, without setting fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood on the altar, but not set, it, set fire to it. Then call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. Confidence and faith. The God who answers by setting fire to the wood is the true God, and all the people Agreed. Very interesting how far off they had gone from the one true God. So they prepared one of the bulls and placed it on the altar. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning until noontime, shouting, O Baal, answer us. But there was no reply of any kind. Hmm, wonder why. Then they danced, hobbling around the altar they had made. They were doing everything they could think of. Verse 28, so they shouted louder. 
And following their normal custom, they cut themselves with knives and swords until the blood gushed out. They raved all afternoon until the time of the evening sacrifice. But still, there was no sound, no reply, no response. Crickets. Not even the sound of crickets. So then we have Elijah. Elijah took 12 stones, one to represent each of the tribes of Israel, and he used the stones to rebuild the altar in the name of the Lord. Then he dug a trench around the altar large enough to hold about three gallons of water. He piled wood on the altar, cut the bowl into pieces, and laid the pieces on the wood. Then he said, fill four large jars with water and pour the water over the offering and the wood. And they did it three times, soaked it, saturated it, made it so that there's no way that anybody could say, well, a little spark or this happened or, you know, somebody lit a match or whatever it was. So they, they made sure this thing, it was impossible. So they went, he went far and beyond. So verse 36, Elijah, the prophet, walked up to the altar and he prayed. He didn't get out knives and blades and chanting and dancing and, and screaming and yelling. He just walked up to the altar and prayed, oh, Lord. God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because here's some generational stuff that was being passed down. There were some things he was calling on because he knew Abraham was a, man, a father of faith, and he knew Jacob, and all of the Isaac and Jacob. He knew the generational history, and he called out, Lord, of the, these generations that have impacted me and influenced my life so much, God, prove today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant. Prove that I've done all this at your command. O Lord, answer me. Answer me so these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have brought them back to yourself. It's interesting because I think for us, you know, so many times we try to prove God to people when God's more than capable of proving himself. And so we try to muster up some things sometimes and we make up these things to try to present or whatever to make God look like you know, something we want it to be, and God's just waiting and said, hey, I can do this. You know, when we call on him, we need to be confident. Confident, just like Elijah was confident. God, I just know. I know who you say you are, and you're right now, you're going to prove yourself to all of these people who've chosen to worship other gods. So, verse 38, immediately, the fire of the Lord flashed down from heaven and burned up the young bull, the wood, the stones, and the dust. It even licked up all the water in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell face down on the ground and cried out, The Lord, capital L, he is capital G, God. Yes, the Lord is God. What a better way to prove. And it was easy because God did it. Elijah didn't have to do that. But how many people stood around and watched the power of God at work? Verse 40, then Elijah commanded, Seize all the prophets of Baal. Don't let a single one escape. So the people seized all, them all, and Elijah took them down to Kishon Valley and killed them there. Chapter 19, when Ahab got home, he told Jezebel everything Elijah had done, including the way he had killed all the prophets of Baal. So Jezebel sent this message to Elijah. May the gods strike me and even kill me if by this time tomorrow I have not killed you just as you killed them. Wow, you think, man, this was just an amazing thing that God just did using Elijah, and now Elijah is in trouble again in a sense. says Elijah was afraid, and he fled for his life. He has normal feelings, just like you and I. He just saw an incredible miracle, didn't he? He saw a few, because we're talking about the woman and all these things, and he, he's seen somebody raised from the dead. He's been a part of that. He's been a part of 
this incredible sacrifice that caught on fire from God, and, and then there's a threat to kill him, and he's afraid. Fear's a real and natural thing. We understand that. But so if we experience these things, it's normal human reaction, just like for Elijah. But God was allowing him to go through these things. He's, he's challenging, he's testing him because there's something he needs to grab a hold of, get a hold of, because there's another generation that needs to see and hear the incredible power and miracles of God and how this person made it through those times and was able to have what it took to go to the next generation. So he was afraid for his life. He fled. He went to Beersheba and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said, take my life. Whoa, what a transition. But this is real. We have these feelings. They're real. We go from these descents and stuff. But understand, God is with them the whole time. So God, in all of his greatness, talks to Elijah. He says, and, and so we jump to, to verse 11. He says, go out and stand before me on the mountain. That's what the Lord told him. And Elijah stood there, and the Lord passed by. And a mighty windstorm hit the mountain. It was such a terrible blast that the rocks were torn loose. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, there was a sound of a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went and stood at the entrance of the cave. And a voice said, what are you doing here, Elijah? See, these things that we saw, the earthquake, the fire, the wind, all those things, those are acts of God, but he didn't reveal himself until the gentle whisper so many times we're looking for God in this big explosion of something. Oh, that's where we'll find him. And the reality, when we were listening and we're quiet, there's a gentle whisper that comes and said, I'm your God, I'm your Lord, I've got this. There's something about God that he does it his way, and we need to be able to hear when he's speaking to us and not always expect it to be some huge event, but he can come in a still, small way. Because we're looking for the big we're looking for the, wow, we just need to see God big here. And he just comes after he shows his incredible power and what he's capable of. Then he comes in and goes, Psst, guess what? I'm here. I got you. It's just that gentle whisper. And it's so calming for us. These events provide a vivid demonstration that God is not always works in the way of these visible and dramatic things that are powerful. He can come and choose to, to present himself silently. Verse 14, he replies again, I have zealously served the Lord God Almighty, but the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you, torn down their altars, and killed every one of your prophets. I'm the only one left, he thinks again. And now they're trying to kill me too. It's okay. <laughs> it's all right if we tell God our stuff. Then the Lord told him, go back the same way you came and travel to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive there, anoint Haziel to be king of Aram, then anoint Jehu, grandson of Nimshi, to be king of Israel, and anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, to replace you as my prophet. And it wasn't something negative. It was something, it was a process that he understood what God's saying. So Elijah went and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, plowing a field. Elijah went over to him and threw his cloak across him and walked away. And we could look at this as like, He's just snubbing him or whatever. And there could be a, a little bit of, because we don't really know exactly, but he threw his cloak. But there was something about that because the cloak was a symbol of authority. Elisha didn't need to be told anything. God already <laughs> was at work. And Elisha knew exactly what had just happened in the sense of, man, this, this cloak just came on me. That 
means something. There's a transference of something that's happening in my life. I need to pay attention. I need to pay attention to this generation that's coming to me that's actually interacting with me in the sense of giving me this cloak, but there's a sense of probably Elijah like, I'm not sure how to connect here, but I know I'm supposed to, and so there's a little bit of this thing going on, and so Elisha left the oxen standing there, ran after Elijah and said to him, first let me go kiss my father and mother goodbye, and then I will go with you, and then he went with Elijah to, as his assistant. I'm going to hurry here, so I'm going to finish up this story. Second Kings chapter 2, verse 1. When the Lord was about to take Elijah up into heaven in a whirlwind, because this was time, he was just going to go like that. So Elijah and Elisha were traveling from Gilgal. Elijah said to Elisha, stay here, for the Lord has told me to go to Bethel. But here's the interesting thing. Elisha replied, as surely as the Lord lives and you yourself live, I will never leave you. Something interesting for the generation. It's like, I am going after this thing. I want what you have. I want what God is placing from you, a transference, anointing, whatever that is, I'm not letting you out of my sight. And so there's something to be said here about Elisha's tenacity and the generation today, the young generation of going, you know, I need to grab a hold of everything that the generation ahead of me has received from God. There's a blessing, there's an anointing, there's something that I need. I may not understand everything about that generation, but there's something God has done there that I need to grab a hold of. So they went down together to Bethel. The group of prophets from Bethel came to Elisha and asked him, Did you know that the Lord is going to take your master away from you today? Of course I know, Elisha answered. But be quiet about it. Then Elijah said to Elisha again, he said, Stay here, for the Lord has told me to go to Jericho. It could have just happened. He said, Okay, go ahead. No, but Elisha replied again, As surely as the Lord lives and you yourself live, I will never leave you. I'm getting what you have. So they went together to Jericho. Then the group of prophets from Jericho came to Elisha and asked him, did you know that the Lord is going to take your master away from you today? Of course I know, Elisha answered, but be quiet about it. Then Elijah said to Elisha again, stay here, for the Lord has told me to go to the Jordan River. But again, Elisha replied, as surely as the Lord lives and you yourself live, I will never leave you. There's something he's being tested. God's allowing this test to come, and it's coming, it's coming. And Elisha has just doggedly grabbed the hold of this thing. There's something I need to get from that generation. So they went on together. Fifty men from the group of prophets also went and watched from a distance. They were all gathered around watching as Elijah and Elisha stopped by the River Jordan. Then Elijah folded his cloak together and struck the water with it. The river divided, and the two of them went across on dry ground. There was something that was happening. There was something, the power of the anointing that was in this cloak. He was demonstrating to the next generation, this is what the power of God can do. He could have just given him the cloak and said, you're on your own, dude. You know, as much as maybe Elijah was kind of this frustrated in the sense of, well, I'm called to go do this. I'm going to go do it. But there was still something he knew that he needed to do, and Elisha knew exactly what he needed to do to to pursue. But there was this miraculous experience that Elisha saw, that Elijah did with this cloak. When they came to the other side, Elijah said to Elisha, tell me what I can do for you before I am taken away. Interesting. A generation is saying, what can I do for you? How can I make things or help you to exceed Everything that whatever I've done in the previous year, how can, what can I do for you? And Elisha 
replied, let me inherit a double share of your spirit and become your successor. That's not prideful. That's just like, man, I am so, I so want what you have. I so want the experience that you've had. You have asked a difficult thing, Elijah replied. If you see me when I'm taken from you, then you will get your request. But if not, then you won't. As they were walking along and talking, suddenly a chariot of fire appeared drawn by horses of fire. It drove between the two men, separating them, and Elijah was carried by a whirlwind into heaven. Elisha saw it and cried out, My father, my father, I see the chariots and charioteers of Israel. And as they disappeared from sight, Elisha tore his clothes in distress. He probably wanted to spend more time with this man. Elisha picked up Elijah's cloak because it had fallen as he went when he was taken up. Then Elisha returned to the bank of the Jordan River. He went back to the place of the miracle. He went back there and he's like, you know what? I'm going to try this. He struck the water with Elijah's cloak and cried out, where is the Lord God of Elijah? Then the river divided and Elisha went across. God's like, yep, he proved himself to him. What that previous generation was transferred on and it was something he was able to take. When the group of prophets from Jericho saw from a distance what happened, they exclaimed, Elijah's spirit rests on Elisha. And they went to meet him and bowed to the ground before him. Sir, they said, just say the word and 50 of our strongest men will search the wilderness for your master. Perhaps the spirit of the Lord has left him on some mountain or in some valley. No, Elisha said, don't send them. He's like, I know what happened. This was part of God's plan. You don't need to do that. But they kept urging him until they shamed him into agreeing, putting a lot of pressure on him. Come on, come on, come on. He finally said, all right, send them. He just wanted to get him out of there. So 50 men searched for three days but did not find Elijah. Elisha was still at Jericho when they returned. Didn't I tell you not to go? Yeah. Elisha... In this little last little segment, he's already building something with these prophets that came and told to tell him he needed to do. He's already building something, and, and there's that anointing that was on him that he said, "No, don't do this." But they did it, and then they came back and realized, "Okay, there's an anointing on you. There's something we need to pay attention to." I know I went a long time this morning, and, that, and we blasted through a lot of stuff, but I just wanted to leave you with this this morning to be thinking about. How the generational influence, generation influence, how we can do this together, how we can work together for kingdom purpose, for extending the kingdom of God, for seeing the good news extended. We read through a lot of scripture, but there's such good things, nuggets in there. And if you go back and review this story and read through the story of Elijah and Elisha, you'll be able to mine a lot of things out of there that can really help us where we're at in our generation. So I just want to encourage you, take the time connect with other generations and begin to talk about some of the things of God, some of the experiences that can be shared back and forth. Amen. Lord, I thank you that you're a God of all generations. You weren't in the wind, you weren't in the fire, you weren't in the earthquake, but you're in the gentle whisper and this morning you're whispering to us to experience your presence, to be in your presence, to take what we learn from you and to tr begin to transfer that to others. When people say, I don't, I don't know how to experience God, but we can help be part of that experience for them. I pray, Lord, for each one of us as we think about this, as we digest this, as we pursue you and pursue 
lives of those who desperately need you, that we can do it being a generation of influence. I thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Let's just worship God for a moment. And if there's anything you need prayer for this morning, and I know we're, we're continuing to pray for healing for a lot of people. If you need prayer for healing, anything this morning, or you're here and you, you're like, man, I, I, I want to be a part of this generation influence. I really want God to use me in, in a powerful way. Whatever that may be, we want to pray for you this morning. Come to the altar. Let's sing. Thank you for listening to City Life Church Podcast.